Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast for water treaters by water treaters, where we're scaling up on water treatment knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Hi, folks. I am Trace Blackmore. I am the host of Scaling Up, and I am super excited because we've got the AWT convention right around the corner. So I hope you've got your tickets for that. And more so, I hope to see you there. I am going to be broadcasting at the convention. So maybe I'll talk with you on an interview, but I do want you to make sure that you get from me one of the scaling up buttons that I've had created. My goal is to have everybody in the convention hall walking around with a scaling up button. I'm hoping that water traders that don't know about the show will learn about the show and then let me know what I can do to make the show even better. I think I've said on our earlier broadcast that we're well above 1,500 downloads per episode. So you guys are are really embracing the show and I want to thank you for that. And I think one of the reasons that people enjoy the show is because I'm answering the questions that you guys are giving to me to answer. So please keep those coming. Well, on today's show, I thought that we would talk about polymers and we all have polymers in our product. And we all know that polymers do certain things and one category of polymers does this, the other category does this, and some do better of that than they do this. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of polymers. So how do we keep them all straight? Well, last year, Mike Standish of Radical Polymers put together a presentation for AWT where he truly boiled down what we needed to know about polymers, and then also how we can take all of those categories and lump them into three simple categories so we know what they do based on functional groups. I thought that I could sound smart and just read his paper, but then I thought maybe it makes more sense for me to have Mike on the show So I called him up and he said, absolutely, he would love to come on Scaling Up and share what he presented with the Association of Water Technologies here on Scaling Up. So we're going to talk with Mike. But before we do, we are going to talk a little bit about stack temperatures. So another issue of the boiling point and the boiling point is stuff that I see other water treaters do that makes me go, I wish they wouldn't do that, or I wish they maybe would do something. And because it frustrates me, it should frustrate you. And I'm going to share it with you so you can be better than the person that I saw. I'm going to protect the names. I will protect the innocent, although this person was not innocent because they were the offender of what I was getting ready to tell you. So I was I was hired by a customer to look at a, a water treatment account, and it was a boiler. And they were concerned about what was going on with their system as far as efficiency. Well, I was there when the water treater was running their tests, and I asked them a question about the stack temperatures. Now, for those of you that don't know, stack temperatures is just simply the temperature of the gas, the exhaust, after the heat, the flame goes through the boiler and exhausts out. And for those of you that don't know, there is a thermometer located on the stack to let us know what the temperature is. 
Now, I asked him why he didn't record this, and he told me, I'm a water treater. I don't do anything with that flame. That's why this is a boiling point, because we are responsible for making sure we're taking care of the entire system. And that stack temperature is a look inside that boiler to see how efficient we are. Now, if you just get one stack temperature, it's not going to tell you anything. But over time, if you and your customer are recording those stack temperatures, you'll be able to see if that temperature is one, staying the same, if it's getting hotter, or if it's getting cooler. Let's look at both of those scenarios. So if it's staying the same, it's staying the same. Let's say that it's getting cooler. Well, what does that tell us? I've said in other shows, our job is heat transfer efficiency management. So we're putting that flame in through the boiler, by the way, that big hole that it goes through first, it's called the Morrison tube for 5,000 points in the lead if you're ever on Jeopardy. So it goes through that Morrison tube and then it does however many passes that boiler is and it will go out of the stack and the heat that was not transferred from that flame into the water is now wasted and going out to the atmosphere. So if we see that temperature getting cooler, that's telling us that we're transferring more heat from the, if it's a fire tube boiler, from the inside of those tubes to the outside where the water is. Well, that's good. We're paying for that gas to create that flame so we can heat the water. That's the whole point. We don't want to use any excess gas or lose any excess heat that we don't have to. So the inverse of that, we see that stack temperature getting hotter. Well, that tells us that there's something on those tubes that's insulating that heat inside that tube so we can't transfer it out. Now, that might be an indication that we're starting to scale some ion inside the system. Now, if we ran the proper test, we should be able to look back and see exactly what's going on. Oh, wait a second. That water softener hasn't been working in a while. Maybe that's what's going on. And some other tests that I run confirm that. Maybe everything's working fine. And we're wondering what the heck's going on. Well, have you ever noticed, and I'm talking, I'm visualizing a fire tube boiler right now, but have you ever noticed when you look on the back side of the boiler, so now the front side, that big tube I said is called the Morrison tube. So the front side is where the uh, combustion chamber is, and that's blowing the flame back. And on the back side of the boiler, we've got that little peephole that's there. If we open that, we should see a nice, efficient, bluish colored flame there. If you open that up and you see an orange or yellow flame, that's not good. That's not a well-tuned flame. And there's a lot of byproducts that are being produced because that's not an efficient flame, i.e. boiler soot. And soot is way more insulative than scale is at lower amounts. Really at any amounts, but we're going to notice it a lot quicker. And soot is way more insulative than scale is. So if we notice that our program looks great, and we've got all the evidence that we can back that up, but that flame looks horrible, well, that's what's happening. And you might say, well, I'm a water treater. I don't treat the flame side. But your job is heat transfer efficiency manager. 
and you are the person that is the liaison between that equipment and between the owner of that equipment. That equipment cannot speak directly to the owner. They need a translator, and that is you. Your job is to make sure that they're communicating properly. And you're going to say that this flame is not tuned up the way that it should, and these are the issues that it's causing. You should get a boiler company to come out and tune this up for you. And what a great thought to get some extra leads if you befriend a boiler company and learn a little bit more how boilers work, teach them a little bit more how water treatment works. That's a pretty good relationship. Now you're looking at the stack temperatures after everything's corrected and you're seeing that those that temperature is a lot lower now that those things are fixed. If you don't keep track of your stack temperatures, you're never going to know what they're telling you. So hopefully on every service you're recording that, hopefully your customer might be recording that. And a lot of the boilers out there will actually record that for you. So if you know how to use that user interface, you could see what the temperature is over the last month, over every single minute of that month. So have somebody show you how to use that if you have one of those systems. So I hope you're taking to heart that you're not just a water treater. Your job is to be a heat transfer efficiency manager, and it's your job to make sure that the equipment is speaking through you to that customer. Today, my lab partner is Mike Standish, and I had the pleasure of meeting Mike probably about 12 years ago when we were elected on the AWT board together and got to experience the trials and tribulations of working on AWT together. Since that time, he's become a really good friend of mine and a huge resource for my company. And I want to introduce everybody to Mike Standish. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing great, Trace. Thank you very much. And thank you for the opportunity to be your lab partner today. Absolutely. A lot of people ask me questions about blending. And I know a lot of us are out there and we just simply use our products as they're made, but there are materials that go into those products in order for us to make them. And that's where you have your expertise. So that's what I was hoping that we could talk today to our audience and, and let them know, you know, exactly what is the stuff that goes in our stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, you know, in some ways it's pretty complex and in other ways it's, it's quite simple. And so I think, you know, we can kind of demystify some of the perceptions around the additives, uh, phosphonates, polymers, and so on. And yeah, make it maybe a little bit more uh, simple where people can make wise choices in how they approach water treatment. And I will say that that is one of your talents. You are able to take very complex items and present them in a very simplistic way, uh, just as you did last year in your paper to the Association of Water Technology. So I'm hoping to get to that, but I thought before we did, I'd ask you a couple of questions just so the audience gets to know Mike Standish a little bit better. So how did you come into the water treatment industry? Well, if I'm brutally honest, we'll start off with some embarrassment. When I was in high school and my first year of college, I actually worked scooping ice cream at Baskin Robbins and started at the University of Tennessee, uh, Chattanooga, in the chemistry department. And I had one of the professors come up to me one day and said, hey, you want a job? And I'm like, yeah, I want to do anything but 
scoop ice cream. You know, by the way, Baskin Robbins has many more than 31 flavors, so there's a lot to scoop. But uh, anyway, and so I I went to work for a company as a co-op student where I I went to school and uh, worked. I did it in a parallel program and did that uh, full-time school and and about 30, 35 hours a week of work. And the company I went to work for had a a stake in supplying polymers for the water treatment industry. And I was just fortunate to have a great mentor there that, uh, you know, wanted to help me learn and and wanted to teach me at least what he knew about water treatment and kind of went from there. So, and then ultimately you started your own company. What was that ride like? Well, I'm still on the ride. It's somewhat of a, a roller coaster, but it was great. I, this is actually my 31st year in in the industry. I started in 1986 as an 18-year-old, and uh, I, I spent most of that time working for very large corporations, global companies, and you know, at some point, I just got to the to the point where. I, I felt like, you know, look, this is something that I could do myself. And frankly, the biggest driver to start the business was I felt like there was a real need, particularly with independent water treaters, because what was happening is you had the big global guys who had, I wouldn't say turn their back to the small guys, but essentially, you know, just did not dedicate a lot of resource to, to service the independent uh, companies with technology and support and customer service. And so we really saw a nice opportunity to come in with that mentality to, to go overboard in the, in the way that we service the independent water treaters. And and the, the industry has been very receptive to that. We did something a little unique. And when I say we, uh, my wife, I'm a chemist and uh, my wife's a chemist and our oldest daughter is a chemist. So we kind of had a built-in you know, set of resources, at least on the chemistry side. And one of the things that we did that was kind of unique when we started the business is we spent the first full year not trying to sell anything. We rented lab space and we just did product development for actually about 15 months. And then we launched our uh, company and our uh, product technologies at the 2014 AWT meeting. And since then, it's... uh, it's been really a gratifying ride, if you will, on the roller coaster. Well, Mike, in addition to owning your own business, you own a family-run business. And I know that's very common in the water treatment industry, but sometimes they run smoother than others. And your company seems to run pretty smooth with your family members. How do you do that? Well, uh, that's a great question. You know, my my wife and I, so my wife, Leslie, is is more of a polymer synthesis chemist. I'm more on the application side. So our roles are pretty well divided and, and, you know, we we have separate things that we do. So there's rarely kind of any butting heads there. Now, our oldest daughter, uh, Chelsea, she works with me on the application side primarily, and you know I have to say we we did this twice when, when we were I mentioned that we started up our business in this research uh, for the first year uh, that wasn't as smooth uh, just everybody kind of getting along there. But Chelsea actually went off to graduate school, came back to work for us on a full time basis, and you know frankly it's gone just uh, extraordinarily well in, in the past couple of years, and I. I think 
you know, I think I don't have any great insight there uh, other than just saying we, we all have mutual respect for each other. We all know that we're rowing in the same direction and, and with the same vigor, and uh, we're all trying to get to the same point. And I think, you know, it's helpful to keep that in mind each and every day. But, you know, for us so far, there's really been no kind of issue. We, we all work well together, and uh, I think it, it's worked. Uh, now, you know, ask me in 15 years, you know, maybe maybe there's some more. But uh, at this point, it, it's worked well for us, for sure. Well, excellent. Excellent. And then as far as your company, how would you help the regular water treater out there? What, what do you guys do for that? Okay, so specific to our company, we're, we're mainly helping people with mineral scale control and corrosion issues, uh, mainly mild steel corrosion issues. But I would take a step back from that a little bit because I mentioned that I had a mentor early in, in my career. And one of the things that I did when I was working as a student is I would have questions and, and I would go to my boss's office and he was usually on the phone talking with a customer and so I would have to sit and wait and wait and wait. But I listened, you know, to his conversations with customers. And one of the things that really impressed me and was impressed upon me is he was always helpful and it didn't have to be about the company's particular products. If he could help solve a problem with a competitive product or some other peer technology or what have you, he was always trying to help customers. So to directly answer your question, I think anybody that ever contacts me would would vouch for this. I want to help people in whatever way that I can from a technical problem-solving point of view. And whether that involves our products for mineral scale or corrosion control or whether that involves a competitor product or, you know, some other product that we're not involved in, I want to be a resource for our customers period, uh, the end, uh, because I think looking at this in the long game, people, you know, respect that and they'll come, you know, to us when they have an issue and, and you know, we'll have built that trust in the relationship. So ultimately, we want to be a resource for our customers across the board. We're not high sales pitch type people. And so I think, you know, I, I would invite your audience to test us on that. That's that's how I grew up. That was how I was mentored, and that has really stuck with me throughout my career. Well, as I mentioned before, you have a, a given talent for being able to take very complex issues and boil them down and explain them in a very simplistic way. So I, I'd like to ask you, how would somebody define a polymer? How would you define a polymer? I would define uh, a, a polymer in the simplest terms, which is this. Uh, polymer is derived from Greek, poly meaning many, and mer meaning unit. So ultimately, polymers are molecules that are many units long. Now, I actually have the IUPAC definition for, you know, a polymer, and maybe it's worthwhile kind of reading that off so people have the formal definition But because there's some nuances there. But ultimately, polymers are different than what any other additive that you're using in water in that they are in water treatment in that they are uh, molecules that are derived from putting a bunch of different molecules together, which are called monomers. 
The IUPAC definition is that a substance composed of molecules characterized by multiple repetition of one or more species that are linked to each other in amounts sufficient to provide a set of properties that do not vary markedly with the addition or removal of one or few constituent units. Now, that's a long definition, but what I would say from that is, is that, you know, the idea is, is that you're linking one or more species together, and whether you have one more or one less, it generally doesn't affect the, the, the specific properties of the, of the overall molecule. And what, are polymers all made the same? How do they, how do they actually do that? No, they're a, a, absolutely uh, not made the same. There, there are many different ways to make polymers to go together and, and to characterize polymers. And frankly, some of the very simplest nuances can have pretty profound effects in efficacy. That being said, most of the polymers that are that are used in the water treatment industry are are made via a route called free radical polymerization. And essentially what's happening there is you add some materials called initiators into into the reaction vessel that has the monomers, the single repeating units. Those initiators uh, form radicals and the, on the monomers. And then once those monomers are formed as radicals, they start to attach to each other and form the polymers. That's the most simplistic way to look at it, but there are so many nuances in the way that, that the polymers are put together, the different types of initiators you could use, the different reaction chemistry, the different types of monomers or building blocks that you use uh, can have very, very dramatic consequences in terms of how the product works. Well, how many polymers would you say are out there? Well, hundreds, literally hundreds. There's at least... 60 to 75 truly unique polymers that are regularly employed in, in the water treatment industry for scale control. And that's not accounting for all the different manufacturers. So if you take those 75 or so, you know, just base compositions and manufacturing processes, and then you multiply that by however many, you know, polymer suppliers that there are, there's hundreds if not thousands of, of polymers. However, that being said, the thing that is really interesting is, is that all polymers that are used in, in water treatment for mineral scale control are comprised of three different types of building blocks, carboxylates, sulfonates, and or non-ionics. And everything is a variation on a theme uh, between those three types of building blocks to make those polymers. So out of these out of these thousand polymers, we boil down to about sixty to seventy five that's in the water treatment industry, and then out of that, those are boiled down into three groups. They they absolutely do. They boil down into three classifications. Well, can we talk about those classifications and why certain things are in there? Sure. So one of the things I'd like to say is is that with polymers, selection of polymers in particular, that the right approach is is to start with a problem and work your way back to the polymer selection rather than starting with some polymer with a bunch of marketing and technical information and trying to kind of fit that into an application people should always start with the problem and, and work their way back so 
by doing that, what you would look at is, is the three different types of functional groups. Carboxylates are typically um, materials like polyacrylic acid or maleic-based materials, and people are probably familiar with those terms uh, to an extent. Those materials are used for kind of general-purpose building blocks. Uh, they tend to be pretty functional for things like calcium carbonate control, calcium sulfate control. They don't really have carboxylates, really don't provide much functionality for stabilization of things like iron or phosphate. They, they just don't have, have that functionality, but they're, they're the most economical raw materials out of the three uh, as a general rule and kind of provide the base functionality of the polymer. The other thing to say about carboxylates is that most polymers that, you know, people are going to buy are going to be uh, most heavily weighted with the carboxylated monomers. Sulfonates are, tend to be employed in areas where you need to incorporate phosphate stabilization properties, iron stabilization properties, or zinc, or if you need to add better uh, stability of the polymer in high ionic strength environments or, or high hardness environments, what have you. And then the non-ionics are more nuanced. They are used to either enhance uh, properties like calcium carbonate control or calcium phosphate control or enhance properties like crystal modification. Or sometimes non-ionics are utilized just to change the way that the polymer goes together which is a little bit more complex topic, but in general, just kind of change, if you will, the polymer architecture, which can have some impact upon performance. Can I clarify uh, that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, would that be if, you know, I'm going out to buy a water heater and the Home Depot aisle, it has good, better, best. Do these three categories sort of fall into that as well? I would not, I would say no. And, and in fact, so the answer is yes and no, but, but the first answer would be no. I would definitely caution all of the, the listeners uh, to, to the podcast today to not buy uh, or select products based on composition alone. It, it, the key is, is to fit the right polymer with the right application. And frankly, sometimes the, the cheapest, simplest, polymer can be absolutely the best choice uh, for an application, and sometimes the most complex, uh, most nuanced polymer can be the best for the particular application, but I would not look at it in good, better, and best in, in general. However, what, what you can say is when you start to add different functionalities, you start to increase the efficacy of, of these products for you know, different types of scales. So I, I think it's more about the right selection than about good, better, and best. So as a water treater, we really need to know about the water that we're treating. We need to be able to hypothesize what those issues are going to be, and then we need to talk with somebody like yourself to say, you know, these are my issues. How or what can I use to combat this problem? Yeah, th that's exactly right. And, and so uh, let me give you a little bit of an example. 
you, you may have a water that you're treating and in your primary issue is, you know, your, your tower is near a construction zone and you've got a lot of suspended solids in the tower. But otherwise, you know, your LSI is pretty low. Corrosion rate is not remarkable. The, the best selection in that might just be a medium molecular weight polyacrylic acid to just provide some basic dispersion of those solids that are being incorporated into the tower due to, you know, airborne debris from the construction site. So, you know, it's it's not always, you don't always go to the most complex, most expensive material. You absolutely want to match the application with the, with the polymer functionality. Now, Mike, you just brought up a new term there. You mentioned medium molecular weight. What does that mean? Okay, well, Trace, it can, it can actually mean, I'm not trying to be cute here, but it can mean anything. But in general, with polymers that are used for mineral scale control, most of those are at a molecular weight of less than 10,000 Daltons. And Dalton is a term that actually just means, uh, you know, combined atomic mass. So we're talking about polymers that are relatively low molecular weight compared to, say, flocculent type materials that are used in the waste treatment um, applications that can be in the hundreds of thousands or millions or even tens of millions molecular weight. So our scale control polymers that, that are used in uh, process applications tend to be, for the most part, everything's below 10,000 molecular weight. So a medium molecular weight may, may be in the four to 6,000 molecular weight range. And to make a little comment about that, what you tend to find as a rule of thumb is that polymers that tend to be a little bit lower molecular weight, say, you know, below 2,000, tend to be better uh, scale inhibitors, maintaining solubility of the scale. And polymers that tend to be higher, say, you know, four, five, up to 10,000 molecular weight, tend to be more functional as particulate dispersants. Now, there's exceptions to those kind of rules, but um, that's generally true. So a medium molecular weight polymer in this context it's something that's about four to 6,000 molecular weight. All right. So you mentioned before that we need to start with the problem and then use this as a tool to solve the problem. And you also mentioned that there's a lot of marketing material out there. And I know when I look at marketing material from the manufacturers, every single thing out there will slice, dice, julienne, and take care of anything under yeah. the sun. What advice would you have to our listeners how to go beyond that marketing material? Absolutely. So I, I would make one comment is that, look, the people that generate or the companies that generate technical data for these uh, polymers, the, the, all the reputable suppliers out there, they are putting out good data and earnest data. So there would be nothing to suggest it's not that, but it is marketing material. So my biggest piece of advice would be is to engage directly with the supplier and have a technical uh, relationship such that you can describe the polymer, or sorry, describe the pro uh, problem that you're experiencing and develop a trustful relationship such that you can be confident that their recommendation coming back is, uh, you know, is appropriate. And I would say try to find a supplier that Sometimes when you're talking with them that their product is not the answer to your problem because, you know, there's, there's, there's no wonder polymer out there and, and there's really no supplier that has the solution to every single 
problem and application. So you really need to have a partner. You need to have somebody that understands you and your problem and wants to help. I, th- I think so. I think so. And I think you can find that at multiple sources within this industry. I, I think that's one of the benefits of being within the AWT and being, you know, independent water treatment company. It's a collaborative environment. So let's, let's ask this. So now we've done all that work. We think everything is perfect and we go out and we find that it's not the right polymer. How would we know that? What would we do? Well, that's a that's a great question. I I, I think the worst case scenario there, uh, where you you find that out, is that you see you know you you see failure, you see that the polymer doesn't uh, function to solve the the issue that you that you're trying to solve. So I think that's kind of the worst case scenario. But frankly. There are some pretty basic things that you, that uh, anyone could do to look at structure function properties of, of polymers. You know, as an example, you you could look at stability of different polymers in the presence of increasing concentrations of calcium. So, if you're looking to run, you know, a polymer for a high cycle application where you have pretty high pH, alkalinity, and and hardness levels and you're concerned about polymer stability, you could take, you know, some of your cooling water and and test for polymer stability by simple, you know, turbidity and visual type testing. Or you could even do bottle testing to to look at differences if if you want to go to that extreme. But I I think, you know, ultimately just having that collaborative relationship with the supplier is the best uh, best option. So when we put all of our products together, polymers are one ingredient. Do we need to be aware that some things work better with others? Yes, I, I think so. And, and in fact, you know, there, there's this idea in particular that polymers and phosphonates can work synergistically together. The interesting thing about that is that there's there's this basic perception that that's true, but there's not a lot of evidence out there. There's not a lot of technical data to say, yeah, if I use my polymer and phosphonate together, that that I'm going to see one and one equals something more than two. And in fact, there's some theories out there that they could compete with each other to uh, perform. So the short answer to your question is is that. I think you should almost look at it more like pairing, that you, when you're putting your formulation together, you need to select each of the right additives that, that will pair together well to, to overall treat the application and solve the problems that you have. I wouldn't get my expectations up so much that when I combine a particular polymer and a particular phosphonate that I get a synergy. But, you know, if nothing else, you need to pair the, the products together. Let me give you a little bit of an example of that. Pretty well known that HEDP as a phosphonate it has some stability issues or sensitivity to calcium. So if you're trying to formulate a product and you pick this, you know, wonder polymer for calcium carbonate control in some high LSI application, but then you formulate that with HEDP that's known to not really function in those applications, then you've probably paired the two materials inappropriately. You know, you might want to select a different phosphonate that also is known to have functionality like PBTC in high LSI waters. So um, maybe a little bit more than what you're asking for, but I think overall I would say don't 
expect synergy, but certainly make sure that you're selecting the materials that are going to, you know, function in, in the given environment together. Well, and you make an interesting point. In my years in water treatment, you know, I like to go to a textbook and be able to verify what I'm trying to do. And in this instance, it just doesn't exist. It's more of an art, would you say? Absolutely. And here, here is the other, the other soapbox point that I would make. And I believe this as a guy that's been a chemical additives guy from day one in, in this industry. Water treatment is a service business, period, the end. What your listeners and what everybody really should come to grips with is that in the end, service is what carries the day in terms of successful water treatment. The additives like polymers, phosphonates, what have you, are essentially the, the tools. And ultimately, everyone has access to the same technology. So the difference between success and failure in, in water treatment largely starts with service. And that is, again, kind of why I would say you start with the problem work your way back to the chemistry and do that in a collaborative fashion, you know, with, with your suppliers to, to get to a formulation that's going to have the best shot at working. Can you test for polymers once they're in the system? So, yes, there, there are a few ways to test for polymers. There are some polymer companies that actually put tags on, onto their polymers where you can test them uniquely with immunoassay-type methods, similar to pregnancy-type tests, although those really haven't fully taken on. What you see a little bit more broadly is that people will test polymers uh, with a turbidity-type uh, method and there's a couple of companies, test kit companies that offer these turbidity tests. And the principle of that is pretty simple. Most of the polymers that are being used are anionic, or at least have anionic components. The way these test kits work is you add a actually another polymer that's cationic to the solution containing your anionic polymer. It forms a turbidity that's proportional to the level of polymer that's in the water. And th those tests, they work. They're not perfect. You're not going to say, well, I have 1.53 ppm of polymer in my circulating water, but you might be able to say, look, I have 1 or I have 5 or I have 10 ppm of polymer in my circulating water. So I know a lot of our listeners are using PTSA. Can PTSA be used to, to trace polymers? So I would generally say no. It can be used to trace formulation concentration. All that PTSA or molybdate or any other tracer that's added, an inert tracer that's added to your formulation does, is tell you how much of your formulation that you fed. It really is more of a measure of, uh, of your uh, pumps and your calculations on system volume that, that you're feeding appropriately. Here's the issue with saying, okay, it, so it's a proxy. PTSA or molybdate is a proxy for everything else that you're adding. But the problem is, is that PTSA doesn't necessarily have the same fate once it gets into the circulating water that the polymer, the phosphonate, the azole, you know, your other components have. As an example, you know, polymers are going to tend to adsorb onto solids. So, you know, where the PTSA might not necessarily do that. So you might be measuring 100 ppb of PTSA and assume you've got 10 ppm of polymer in your application, but okay, 5 ppm of that polymer adsorbed onto all of the suspended solids that are in the system. 
So short answer is it's only a proxy, and it really only tells you that you feed, fed at the correct rate. The fate of the additives generally are, are not necessarily guaranteed to be the same as the fate of PTSA or the live date. So it sounds like you're saying if you're using some sort of tracing material, that's great, but you need to back that up with another test of a functional group that's actually going out and doing something to make sure you have enough. Yes, I, I, I think that that's true, and I think there's two schools of thought. You know, one is performance-based testing, which I kind of fall a little bit more into that school of thought is, uh, you know, I'm more concerned about, uh, on average, you know, how do the condensers look, how do the corrosion coupons look, as opposed to, you know, how many ppm of polymer that I had in, in the solution at any given time. And the other school of thought would be is that, yes, you measure PTSA and then you try to back that up with measurements of phosphorus for your phosphate or phosphonate materials or, you know, turbidity for the polymer type testing. So we have a multitude of different experience levels that listen to this podcast. So for somebody that's just starting out and they're interested in this and they want to find out more information so this starts making a little bit more sense, what advice would you have for them? My advice, and this is not a, not a sales pitch for AWT, but I would say absolutely get engaged in AWT. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of resources from uh, training. You know, the AWT has annual training on the east and west coast every year. The convention is a great place to see all the suppliers and pick their brains and wear them out in the booth. We, we gotta, you know, stand in these booths for hours on end, you know, make, make us work while we're in there. You know, you, you can get a lot of information there. There's a lot of papers and technical papers and resources within AWT. And I'm gonna throw one that's a little different out there. Look at patents, you know, go to Google patent and look up patents, you know, just do a simple search term, calcium carbonate inhibition, you know, cooling power and see what patents come up. It, it might be a little intimidating up front, but there is a wealth of information within the patent literature uh, for, you know, how things work on a structure function type basis. Great tip. Well, for those people out there that are just getting started and they're working with their employer, their manager, whoever, and they want to start to have this conversation with their their boss, what would you recommend they how they start? I would recommend that the couple things. I would recommend that they ask their boss if they can be paired up with someone else in the company that you know has some experience that can be a mentor. Uh, I think that could be a great, you know, learning uh, situation. I would certainly, you know, try to ask if if they could take courses within uh, the AWT training or at least have some resources to the technical training manual or, or there's some online uh, training within AWT. I, but I think mentoring is is probably the way to learn in this industry. And and I guess lastly, if if they could have access to suppliers to ask questions about, you know, how the additives work and why. You know, I, I think that there's the, – the beauty of this industry is that it is very collaborative. And I think people find that, that other people in the industry are very, very willing to help. What would you say the next new thing in polymers is? Well, I, th I think uh, one of the things that, that we're seeing a lot of is this idea of really – 
pushing water kind of beyond the limits of the existing additives to prevent precipitation of scaling materials like calcium carbonate. So this manifests itself, say, into increased cycles, water conservation, those types of things, or use of very, very poor quality water as makeup for uh, cooling towers, say, wastewater or what have you. I think that there's going to be a little bit of a mindset change just by necessity that you know, there'll be more polymers out there that are used to control deposition where precipitation is occurring where you no longer can, can keep everything in solution. So you're, you're really pushing these waters to the point of getting precipitation and you're using the polymers and other additives to control deposition and prevent deposits and, and reduction in heat transfer. The other thing is green. You know, green's always on the horizon. I heard someone say the other day uh, a really great term. They, they said, you know, with green, you have price, performance, and green. You can pick any two. And if you kind of think about that, that is where we are at this point in the industry. You, you can get low price green materials that really don't perform, or you can get high price materials that are green and, and perform, or, you know, you can get things that aren't green and that perform and, and are reasonable in price. I think that ultimately someone will evolve a technology that, that has green components to it that are acceptable performance that is acceptable and hit the price target that, you know, is acceptable to the industry as well. Well, what else should people know about polymers? What haven't I asked you? You know, I, I think the, the biggest kind of misnomer about polymers and the thing that people kind of need to, to have in their mind about polymers is that they are not discrete molecules. And uh, particularly the types of polymers that are used in water treatment, these things are random in the way that they're prepared, uh, in their molecular weight. They're, they're not precise. They are precise in their performance in many cases, but th these things are mixtures of a lot of different molecular weights, a lot of different compositions in some cases, and they're not a discrete molecule, say like a phosphonate that has a certain number of atoms to it. So that really, to me, is, is a big kind of misnomer and, and really drives home the point that it is imperative that either the user has a good understanding of the polymers or that they have a good collaborative relationship with the supplier to help kind of decipher that because it, it's not clear cut in, in selection and performance. It's just not a simple equation. There's a lot of art in, in what goes on with polymers. So, Mike, we've had a really good conversation around polymers, but can we talk about the functionality of the polymer? Yeah, absolutely. You know, just as we said that there's, you know, these 60 to 75 different types of polymers, but it boils down to three functionalities, carboxylate, sulfonate, non-ionic. Same is kind of true with how the products work. It boils down to three primary functionalities. Uh, one is threshold inhibition, which in very simple terms is just maintaining solubility beyond where it 
otherwise would, would be for things like calcium carbonate or calcium phosphate, what have you. The next is particulate dispersion, and that's pretty straightforward. We're, we're trying to suspend solids in solution, and polymers will, will do that. And, and then the third primary functionality that polymers have is this idea of crystal modification. And frankly, that's maybe in some ways the most important one because I'm sure many of your listeners have seen images of modified crystals in the presence of polymers. What the polymers do in that case is they uh, distort the crystals that are precipitating, say calcium carbonate, and really have an impact on how well they can adhere to surfaces. So crystal modification can be very, very important as precipitation occurs to prevent adherent deposition. And just by the way, these same types of polymers are used in other areas of, of our lives for exactly the same purpose. It's just called different things. In the detergent industry, these types of polymers are used for crystal modification to impact what they would call encrustation. So if you wash your dark clothes many times in a hard water area, your your black shirt starts to look gray. Well, that's calcium carbonate. And they'll use polymers for crystal modification to help impact the way that the crystals uh, deposit or mitigate their, their deposition onto the fabric. Same is true in uh, automatic dishwashing applications where you see your hazy glasses. Well, these types of polymers, you know, would have the same type of impact around crystal modification such that you just don't see the same level of adhesion of the scale onto the surface. So threshold, we concentrate up higher than we could with without the polymer. Dispersion, when it comes out of solution, we're making it slick so it can't stick to any surface. And crystal modification, when it does come out of solution, it's not easily stackable, so it's not going to create that nice concrete scale that we're talking about. Is that basically yeah. what you're saying? I think that's basically what I'm saying, and I, I would make two very simple points there. Is with threshold inhibition, the phenomenon there is that you can add very low levels of polymers and phosphonates to solubilize or maintain the solubility of things like calcium carbonate at very, very high levels. So it's not a stoichiometric relationship. So that's what distinguishes threshold inhibition from just sequestration or chelation. So now, do certain polymers just do one of these functional groups or do they do several? Yeah, they do. They can do one or more. As an example, malleic rich materials, which are carboxylate, they tend to be more just threshold inhibitors. Those products tend to be very low molecular weight. And we mentioned earlier that the lower molecular weight tend to be more threshold inhibitors. So those materials actually aren't very good particulate dispersants. But what they also do very well is distort or modify crystals. So they do two of the three things. And, and you may have another type of polymer that is a very, very good dispersant, but, you know, is pretty poor in terms of threshold inhibition or crystal modification. A great example of that is polymethacrylates that are used in boilers as sludge conditioner. So that there's... Uh, Honestly, there are not any singular polymer that does it all, despite the marketing literature. Even our products don't do it all. <laughs> 
So, uh, again, I said that you have uh, an amazing ability to take something very complex and make it very simple. You said we had over a 1,000 polymers out there. You boiled those down to really 60 to 75 that we use in water treatment. And of those 60 to 75, there are three groups. I believe you said carboxylates, sulfonates, non-ionics. And then, depending on what they do, there's three groups of uh, functionality, which are threshold, dispersion, and crystal modification. Did I get all that right, Mike? You did. What I would say on dispersion is really not about making the particulate slick. It's more about just electrostatic repulsion. So we're just trying to keep them suspended in solution as opposed to really changing their surface characteristics a whole lot. It's, it's mainly just keeping them repelled so they don't agglomerate and become large enough to drop out of solution. So everything gets the same charge so they don't want to come together. Well, Mike, I can't think of a better conversation around polymers and, and really how can somebody get started to start to understand this very complex topic. So I want to thank you for having this conversation, but I'm not done with you yet. Uh-oh. I do have a couple of bonus lightning round questions just Uh-oh. so the audience <laughs> can get to know you a little bit better. What was the last book that you've read? Oh, well, I'm actually currently reading, I like to read these Navy SEAL books. I'm currently reading Rob O'Neill's book called The Operator, Firing Shots That Killed Osama Bin Laden. That's kind of interesting to me. So, But I will tell you my favorite book, which you didn't ask, so I guess it's breaking the rules of uh, the, the lightning round. No, we, we have no uh, rules here. Uh, okay, great. Well, my favorite book, and I'd encourage people to try this one out, is uh, called Topaz. Uh, it was written by Leon Uris. It's actually an Alfred Hitchcock movie as well, but uh, that's that's my favorite book of all time. So, Mike, when they make a movie about Mike Standish, who plays Mike Standish? <sighs> It's going to have to be somebody big. Let me think. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe uh, who I would like to play me is probably somebody like Bradley Cooper, or some you know really good-looking guy. But it'd probably be more somebody like uh, you know Brian Dennehy or somebody like that. Okay. And then, if you could have a conversation with anyone throughout history, who would it be with, and why? It would probably be John Wilkes Booth. I'll tell you why. I have no admiration for him, but I like to read some of the books about Lincoln's assassination. And I just like to understand kind of what was going through his head. There's been a lot of speculation about that. But, you know, what was going through his head leading up to the assassination and then, you know, during his escape that that he tried to make for a few days, uh, you know, being on the run. There's probably some better answers. I mean, honestly, if I could go back and talk to anybody, I'd probably go back and talk to my grandfather a little bit more uh, who raised me. But, you know, out of a historical figure, I would say one of them would be John Wilkes, just to figure out what was going through that man's mind. Well, Mike, I've certainly enjoyed speaking with you today, and I do want to thank you for coming on our show. Absolutely. And if any of your listeners would like to reach out, they're welcome to get in touch with me and be happy to do WebExes or anything to uh, go into some of this stuff uh, more thoroughly. All right. And I'll be sure to put your contact information on our show notes page. Okay. That sounds great. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mike Standish of Radical Polymers. Mike just has a great way of taking the huge world of polymers and boiling it down into a very simplistic way for us to understand. The paper that he did for AWT, I will have the abstract on my show notes page, and I'll also have the websites and other things that Mike and I spoke about on my show notes page. I'm going to go ahead and answer one question since this was a longer show. And the question I'm going to answer is about pesticide licensing. And this individual is writing to me is they're not sure if they need a pesticide license or not. Well, first off, let's talk about a pesticide license. Now, we as water treaters are lumped in to the same type of licensing that somebody who does rodent or bug or pest control Uh, in many of our states. So we are required to get a pesticide license uh, in order to apply our biocides. Now, some states do not have this. Other states do. So in Georgia, this is controlled by the Department of Agriculture. And what I would recommend is that you go to your state Department of Agriculture and see if that is a license that you need. If it is, then by all means, figure out what you need to do in order to get that license. Because if you are applying biocides and do not have the appropriate license, in some states it could be fined. In some states it could be jail time. So they're very, very serious about this. A source you may be able to go to is kellysolutions.com. They're not the only registration hub for all the states, but they have the majority of all those states. So you might be able to find some information there. And I definitely recommend if you know somebody in AWT that's in your same state, please reach out to them and ask them what they know about pesticide licensing. That might actually be something that we might want to encourage the Association of Water Technologies to do is maybe compile a list of where pesticide licenses are required for the various states. And then I'll even go as far and say as the education co-chair, we can see what we can do for getting the technical papers that we present either at AWT or especially with the technical training that we do, qualified for some of that continuing education. So we'll start looking into that. You guys start looking into make sure you're doing what you're supposed to do. I'm sure you've heard that ignorance of the law is not an excuse. And above all else, I want to thank you for listening to Scaling Up. I sure do have a lot of fun bringing it to you. I hope to see you at the AWT convention. And until then, make sure you're doing something to make yourself a better water treater tomorrow than you are today. Have a great week, folks. 